Welcome to the How's Your Soul podcast. My name is Andrew and you are listening to season one, episode 14, The Purpose of Work. In this episode, we dive into a conversation about the origin of work, how our soul responds to it, and the consuming effect work can have on us. We have so much to get through, so I feel like per how this podcast goes, we're just going to dive right on in. I'm so stoked to have a conversation about work. I've been thinking through how my soul interacts with work for like months now. So to be able to actually just talk about it and have a conversation, I'm really looking forward to. I stumbled across uh, this essay written in 1985 by a man named Bob Black. He wrote something called The Abolition of Work, and the first sentence really stood out to me because I feel like it's a philosophy that if my soul agrees with, it will have real serious implications into how I view work. And this is how it goes, the very first sentence. No one should ever work. Work is the source of nearly all misery in the world. Almost any evil you'd care to name comes from working or from living in a world designed for work. In order to stop suffering, we have to stop working. And of course, when that was published, that circulated around and uh, now lives in the archives of history. But it's such an interesting perspective because I feel like in many senses, while that's a very extreme perspective of work, that has bled into the way that we see work. I might not see work as a, as a like, literal evil in the world, but I don't see work as necessarily a positive thing. And I feel like a lot of us live in that world where there's even there's even sayings there's even ideologies beyond that where we work to live right maybe you've heard that before right or 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 work is a resource that you can then use it to go enjoy the things that you really want to do right or you work on the weekends right or or there's almost like synonyms with like you slave away on the weekends or the weekdays so that you can enjoy the weekends There's all of these parallels and all these ideologies that probably stem from this individual's work and even before where work is seen as like a toil. It's seen as something negative. It's seen as a hardship, a challenge. It's seen as suffering. And the weekdays or the weekends, sorry, uh, or the vacations or, 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 you know, off hours are, are the places in life where I really truly get to live. But there's something so fascinating about work in and of itself because it's so time consuming and it's such a part of our lives and if we continue to see it negatively i wonder what that does to our soul right if my soul is only existing in joy and happiness and pleasure outside of work how does my soul approach work because work is such a huge part of our lives so i want to start this whole thing when I'm, when I'm processing through it by like, what's the origin of work, right? How, how was work originally designed? And let's go from there. Because obviously somewhere along the way, something happened to where we see work almost in a negative way. And I'm wondering if we can restore in this conversation, I wonder if we can restore kind of the beauty of like the origin of work. Right, if we can go back to the moments that work was first created and capture the essence of like, wow, like that's actually really beautiful. And potentially, maybe, I don't know, take that 
notion and bring it into our day-to-day life, our work life. And potentially it has a profound impact on our soul and how our soul in, interacts with work and uh, and following. And so uh, I think it's it's worth, here's some context, right? I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a, a Christian, I'm coming from a biblical perspective when it comes to work and when it comes to the origin of things. And so I'm, of course, I'm going to Genesis. I know there's a lot of different philosophy behind how you read Genesis, but I'm just going to read it kind of face value and I'm going to take the lessons from there. So I'm going to dive right on in. I want I want to look at Genesis 1 starting in verse 28. So again, we'll let's heap some more context onto that. God is creating. And each day he creates. He finishes his creation. He says it's good. Whether that's birds, whether that's fish, whether that's plants, whether that's just like the, the geographical landscape, whether that's the stars in the sky. He eventually gets to this point where he's creating mankind. And he doesn't just create man and move on. He creates man and then he stops. And he begins to instruct man and bless man, which is really fascinating. And we see that in verse 28 here. So it says, God blessed them, that being man, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number." Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so we have our very first, not necessarily like command or decree of work, but we have this first kind of like invitation that God is wanting man to partake in, which is to not just uh, multiply, increase in number, but to subdue. There's this idea of subduing or to reign or to have dominion over. Those are all kind of synonymous here. And then he outlines that a little bit more. He says, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And he continues that idea with animals and then he ends the sixth day. But when he ends that day, there's something very profound about the way that he ends it. Because every day prior he said it was good. And when he reaches this moment of blessing and commanding, or I don't like to say command, but inviting man to to be a part of what's happening here, he looks back at that moment and he says it's very good. So the initial inkling of the origin of work has its ties back to the concept of being very good. That's meant to be very good. I think that's fascinating. And I want to dive into that a little bit more. So it's not just God created things, people, animals, right? He's creating systems and philosophies. He's he's invited man into this relationship where he is ultimately the ruler, and yet he is handing out responsibility and saying, you go and you reign like I've reigned. You take care of the birds. You take care of the plants. You take care of the animals. You take care of this earth that I've created, but I'm giving to you to have dominion, to subdue it, to reign over it. And that requires work. And yet it is seen as this very good thing. And what an incredible opportunity for mankind to be a part of that we begin to partake in so well, and then it goes so wrong right? And so I want to continue that idea here because it, it keeps going. So in, in Genesis 2, 
it's kind of a recap, if you will, of the creation narrative. And in in verse 15, so Genesis 2.15, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Again, it's, it's all playing into the same idea here. It's an invitation to subdue, to reign, to work, but to take care of. Take care of in the same way that God loved what he was creating and he saw it as very good. We are supposed to kind of continue that process of creating and taking care of and seeing our work as very good. And of course, you know, later on, he, uh, Eve is, is created and the two of them are then charged with the same task to go and to create and to have dominion and to subdue. Interestingly, okay, little rabbit trail, little rabbit trail, okay, won't be long because we have so much to get through, but when uh, there's this huge, big theological debate on what does it mean to be made in the image of God, and some would say it's like, um, it's the ability to, uh, it's like your consciousness, and you, you think, and you can argue, and all these things, and then some say it's appearance, and some say it's, right, there's just, there's so many different perspectives out there. I think a really strong contender is our purpose and our responsibility is very much the image of God, right? God created and then he said, my power and my dominion and my rule I now give to you in my image. And he allows us to then carry it out. I think it's so fascinating. Okay, anyway. So there's this origin story here where work is seen as this really good thing. I think it's really important to note here that it seems like it's a byproduct of something already happening. It's not like work in and of itself is necessarily like your main identity as a man. That's not what's happening here. He created man and blessed man and then said, go take care of, go work. And so out of like the goodness of God, out of that pre-existing relationship, work becomes this byproduct of goodness, which I think is really fascinating. Now, something, of course, happens if you know the story. If you grew up in church, you kind of know what's about to happen. So we're going to go over that. It's called the curse of work. This is when, of course, Eve takes uh, the apple that God said, hey, you know, you can do all this stuff, but don't eat not the apple, <laughs> the, the fruit, okay? We, we've we've symbolized that as the apple for some reason. Um, but Eve goes and takes this fruit eats it, hands it to Adam, Adam eats it, uh, the serpent was the one that totally like tripped him up on this whole thing, and so now this this narrative is unfolding, and God is looking for them after this happens, and God is saying, you know, what have you done? Well, you know, this blame game starts to happen, I'm not going to get into that, because that's a huge story in and of itself, but it ends up putting God in a situation where there has to be justice, Okay, he, he gave a command, they disobeyed, and now there's natural consequences to their actions. And so he turns to Adam and he says in verse, uh, well, this is chapter three, verses 17 through 19. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Okay. That's important. That is really, really important. There's a shift in the ideology and philosophy of work right here that potentially is echoing or pre-existed, obviously, or I think Bob Black is echoing this, if anything. But you can see where Bob Black in his in his work, the uh, 
Ob- abolition? Why can't I say that right? Abolition. Is that right? Abolition? I feel like I'm saying it wrong. Abolition? Abolition. Yeah, abolition of work. There you go. Sometimes when you're looking at something in your notes, you just mispronounce the heck out of it. The abolition of work, right? You can see it's drawing back to this concept of Genesis 3 right here, right? Cursed is the ground because of you. It's no longer a very good thing. It's being cursed and through it continues through painful toil, painful suffering. Through suffering in your work will you eat food from it all the days of your life and it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field not the garden not the thing that god has pre created for man to enjoy now it will be out from you you will have to create you will have to work the field and then reap the rewards of your labor By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Okay, so right then and there, we begin to see the curse of work as God outlines it. Super fascinating concept. So work was this this enjoyable, beautiful thing that we were to partake in with God. There was purpose there. There was intentionality there. I wouldn't yet say man had identified themselves to their work, right? It wasn't like who I am is what I do. It was still who I am is I'm a, I'm a child of God. It, it, it was relational rather than this like transactional But it all begins to shift here. And here's how I can say that with such confidence. Because as you look at the next generation, the next generation quickly, quickly begins to see their identity and what they do. Okay? So keep keep with me here. And this is just my interpretation. Okay? I should just throw that out. I'm not a scholar. I'm I'm just thinking through this critically. If you look at the next generation that Adam and Eve raised in Genesis 4. Okay? We all know the the legendary story uh, or legendary tragedy of Cain and Abel, right? And Abel being uh, the one that was doing everything right and Cain got jealous and then Cain killed, you know what I mean? So there's this whole story. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard this, but I want a little bit of a different take. So let's kind of get some of the context here. In Genesis 4, starting in verse 2, it says this, Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Oh, there's probably some huge, like, just the words there that were chosen is probably really interesting. Regardless, so there's probably both, there's work involved, okay, both are both are doing something, and for the very first time, it, it seems like there's a, there's a division of work, right? So, it's not just Adam and Eve take care of the garden, okay? Abel has specifically been given the task to work the flocks, and Cain has specifically been given the task to work the soil, and both have to work and both have to suffer in that. It's hard work. But now there's some kind of like identity. It's almost like work has now become more associated to who you are. And you'll see that now really quickly. People will begin to associate themselves as shepherds or, uh, gosh, or, or farmers or soldiers or, um, yeah, and it, it just goes on and on and on and on, right? Um, blacksmiths, whatever, whatever it is, right? For the, it, it seems like it's starting here. This this concept of work being associated to your identity. Anyway, in verse three, in the course of time, 
Cain brought some of the fruits of the, uh, of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, there's a lot there that you can go into. Maybe Cain didn't bring the first fruits of soil. He just brought some of the fruits, right? And there's something, you know, God looks at it uh, not favorably, which we see in a second, right? The Lord looked favorably or with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now I'm going to get in some, I'm going to get in some deep waters here. Okay. I'm about to, I'm about to get in some deep waters, but how and when did the notion of doing something for God's favor, like when did that enter the mind of man? Okay, because if you look at the garden, uh, that doesn't really exist yet. God, There was nothing that Adam and Eve could do to earn the favor of God, right? It, that was not how they saw it, right? It was this beautiful invitation to work alongside God, to work underneath God, but it's not like I need to produce something to to earn or gain or garner his favor. They were already totally blessed in the garden that God had created for them, right? Everything that they had owned was was a gift from God. And yet I feel like somewhere here, there's a, there's a philosophy taking place. There's something beginning to happen in the soul of mankind where in order to win over the heart of God, to earn favor in the eyes of the Lord, work is now almost integral to that process. Isn't that just so fascinating? And I, I feel that, I say that all the time in Christianity. All that, and we talk about that. It's so fascinating, right? It's, it, it, it's not, it's no longer I can just exist and be totally loved and in favor with God. There is something, it's like I have to do something for God in order to earn his favor, earn his grace. And, for, and, and that almost keeps so many people from God, right? Because they feel like they haven't done enough or what they've done is almost, a, is almost pushing them away from God. And work has almost become a a pulse in in regards to where they are with the heart of God. They're either far away because they're not doing enough or they're doing all of the wrong things or they're very close because they're doing all the right things. And they're following the Torah and they're following the law of God, which in this case hasn't been created yet, but subsequently it will have, right? And so work is almost becoming a part of the identity of, of mankind. I think that's so fascinating that's happening here. There's this, there's this shift and it only strengthens from here. As we look at the story of Israel, there's a narrative that is, is, is so deep and so profound and we're about to get into it in just a second.
the story of Israel in, in the Exodus narrative, you have the the nation of Egypt that has uh, totally uh, captured and enslaved the Israelites. And there's these hard demands on the Israelites. And you can go and you can read this story uh, for yourself. It's, 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 really, it's really cruel and it's really uh, gruesome what they do to the people of Israel. But essentially, there is a deepening of that same philosophy we had just talked about, right? If they didn't meet their quota of bricks, if they didn't meet their quota of whatever task or responsibility they were given, their worth was directly assigned to that. Right? Hey, you didn't meet your quota. You're not worth much. You met or exceeded your quota. You are worth a great deal. And you see this. You see this begin to play out in the Exodus narrative as the nation of Israel is almost entirely deemed valuable or invaluable based on what they produce for the nation of Egypt. And imagine living in that ideology, in that philosophy. Imagine what that does to the soul of man when all you're based on, your entire value, your entire identity, your entire worth is based on what you can or cannot do. Fast forward. They're freed. Moses in this incredible story of what unfolds and how God grabs their heart and grabs their attention and grabs them as people and brings them out of the land of Egypt into their own land, which starts in the desert and hopefully ends in the promised land. But it goes to the desert first, and this is really important. And so we have this whole thing that unfolds. It's beautiful. It's amazing, right? Egypt just gets totally destroyed. Everyone's cheering. It's amazing. And then they go to the mountain where God is. And they're going to have this first interaction with God. I love, and I, I don't know if I can quote or link anything specifically, but uh, Bema, which is an incredible podcast anyone should check out, when they were going through this, they talked about this period of being in the desert, wandering in the desert, like this honeymoon where God and his bride, the Israelites, were beginning to build a relationship with each other. And God was testing his bride and he was showing his bride lessons, lessons from himself that would allow them to thrive in the promised land when he would bless them with it. It's so powerful. It's amazing. Highly recommend you check it out. But anyway, this is the very first interaction. This is where we get the Ten Commandments, right, that everyone's very familiar with. Even if you don't go to church, you're like, you are widely familiar with the concept and idea of, of the Ten Commandments. And so that's kind of what's happening here. They're interacting with God in the mountain. And at first, it's this terrifying experience. They're like, hey, Moses, God's a little, he's a little, he's a lot, actually. He's a lot. Can you go interact with him? Because we're pretty terrified. And so Moses is like, gotcha. Okay, cool. So he goes up and he's meeting with God and God gives him this, gives him these laws. And interestingly, I don't know if this is, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but the law that God lays out in the Ten Commandments that he spends the most amount of time is the one I'm about to read in verse uh, 8 through 11. This is Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you 
nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed this Sabbath day and made it holy. I want to take that word and let's de-Christify it. It just means unique, set apart, right? He took that day and he set it apart from the other days. He made it unique amongst the rest of the week. And then he continues on with the rest of the Ten Commandments. Now, here's what's so fascinating about this. I want to stop and I want to pause. I don't want to get into a whole conversation about the Sabbath and rest. As for another podcast, I'm holding out. There's so many directions I can go here. I'm trying to refrain myself. But there is something so beautiful happening here because it's this restorative process that God is beginning to do in the hearts of the Israelites and it'll continue to present day Jesus and how we interact with not just Jesus, but work. It just starts right here. It's so, it's so cool. So he's creating the Sabbath, which he's already started in the creation narrative in Genesis. Go back and read it. Seventh day he rested. Now, here's why this is so important. Because again, the Israelites are coming from a place where every Every single day, every single hour, their worth, their value is determined by what they can or cannot do to their authoritative ruler. Okay? You don't produce, you're not worth anything. You do produce, you are worth something. And their new ruler, quote unquote, is this loving, gracious God who has rescued them from the exodus or from the from the Egyptians through the exodus. And he's with them now in the very first lesson he's going to teach them in this moment is, hey, your worth is not based on what you can or cannot do for me. I love you unconditionally. I love you irregardless of the worth in terms of work that you can bring me or can't bring me. And so the Sabbath isn't just a day to rest and reset, though it is in some regards. It's ultimately a restorative process of the soul to move the soul back to what it once was supposed to exist in. Rather than getting so caught up in my work, in seeing my identity in what I do and what I can provide, God is resetting that and saying, who you are is enough for me. And I'm going to have you set aside an entire day where you don't do anything but remember that. And then you can go out and work. And then you can go out and partake in the invitation that I had originally set out in Genesis to work along each other, to take care of, right? To take, to have dominion and subdue and take care of the world. It's so powerful. And so, of course, the nation of Israel is having to reset 
their whole philosophy and how they see themselves. Their identity is no longer tied to what they do, but ultimately tied to a loving and caring and gracious God who is blessing them when they when they don't deserve to be blessed and loving them unconditionally when they don't deserve to be loved. It's this powerful moment where the soul is beginning to experience a reset on the concept of work. And work is no longer an identity sealer. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. There's a couple other things I feel like I'm learning about work in this whole uh, in this whole conversation. Because just transparently, uh, again, I'm going to do a whole thing on the Enneagram. If you don't know the Enneagram, I'm sorry. If you do know the Enneagram, you're in luck because you'll be able to really... Uh, you'll just be excited about this conversation. So I'm a three on the Enneagram. Okay, that means I'm an achiever. And I see a lot of my worth in my in what I do, in my success, in my status. Uh, that's just a natural byproduct. It drives me. I'm a very driven and very passionate person about what I do. But the way that I can go awry and the way that my soul can really take that and run with it is it can take the notion of identity and work and just obsess over that. And all I'm seeing is my self-worth through the lens of my work and what I do and what I provide and the sex and the success that I see from that. And this whole notion and conversation of work that we're having really puts that, just stops that cold, right? Like it, it, it forces me to ask the question, like, what if I did nothing? <laughs> Am I still valuable? What if I produced nothing? Does God still love me? Am I still valuable in the eyes of God? Because I can get so easily caught up in seeing the success of what I do and raving about my own accomplishments and my skills and my abilities and fail so hard to realize that all those things are simply a gift. Not that I'm supposed to see my identity in those things at all. Right? It was meant to be, I'm supposed to see my identity in, in, in relation to God. And he gifts me with the ability to work. And not just work for myself. I think that's another thing, right? Ultimately, it's the most purposeful type of work is it's, it's work for others as much as, as myself. Right? I, I, I do work because, it, it man, I enjoy it. Right? There are things that I, it fills me up. But I also work to love and care for care for. We're just going to keep going back to that over and over and over and over again. Part of the invitation that God gave us in work is for others, to take care of others. And ultimately, like we just talked about, God equips us to do those things. It's not us. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's us to, to take that gift and to nurture it and to be responsible with it. Right, to accept the invitation of what work really is about and run with it and be great at it. But it, we, didn't, we didn't predestine ourselves to have that gift. We didn't choose that gift. We didn't choose what work. That was, that was given to us as a gift by God. I love, I'm going to link this because I, don't, I can't talk about the whole thing, but Steve Harvey actually has some like, dope nuggets of wisdom that everyone should check out. They're really, really good. Uh, sometimes they just show up on YouTube when I'm scrolling and I'm like, dang, Steve, you're just, you're killing it, man. But he does a, he does a whole story on the concept of gifts and work. And he 
absolutely nails it. I'll, just, I'll, paraphrase, I'll paraphrase if I can, just a short story, and you can go, I'll link the whole thing, go watch it, it's so good. But he talks about, he talks about, uh, he talks about getting a haircut. <laughs> and, he, and he talks about hiring this guy that would give him a haircut. And he would go in and he'd just get a regular cut and it was, it was nothing. It was, he was just doing his work, right? But he did great work. He did really good work, right? He, all right Steve would walk away and be like, dang, you know, that cut is it's fresh. Right? It looks good, right? And so eventually Steve became really famous, right? He started going on tour. He was a comedian. He started doing all these really, really cool things. And he said, well, I, I still need haircuts. <laughs> so I'm going to hire this guy who has a gift and giving great haircuts, and I'm going to hire him to come travel with me. And, and all his only his, the only thing that he does, his work, is to give a great cut. And he does. right? He, just, he continues to give a great cut. And then, of course, as we know, Steve eventually loses his hair. He is now bald, which would be a huge, like, crap moment for the, for the guy giving him a haircut. But, of course, Steve leaves him. You know, he says, okay, you know, I'm, obvi- I'm obviously not going to get any more haircuts, but I'm going to leave you well. You know, here's like a, a severance package. And he continues not just to, not, he, doesn't, he doesn't, you know, then exist in like laziness, not doing anything. He goes out and he starts like four more, you know, salon companies. And he starts like haircutting schools. And he's, I mean, he just be, he blows up and he continues to use his gift, not just for himself, but for those around him. And because he's found his gift, as simple as it is, is haircutting, right? We don't, we, we would, we, oh gosh, you know, if I'm like, what, what is the most impactful thing you can do? People aren't saying cut hair, but yet he recognized the gift that he was given as simple as it was to serve not just himself, but those around him. And he just ran with that fully. And he is now a millionaire because he has found how to use and leverage his gift for himself and for others. It's so powerful. He shares two other versions of that story with two different occupations that we would breeze over in a heartbeat. And his whole thing is this. God has gifted you with something. And the intention of that gift is for you to do very good work, to do great work, to be excellent in what you do and to enjoy the invitation that God leaves at the table for you to partake in what work is supposed to be. That it's a gift to care for those around you and for yourself doesn't always have to be enjoyable like the work itself that's not the point the point isn't the work itself though and you know there are very beautiful aspects to work the the point is that you're doing something that god has given you a, a gift and an invitation to care and love everything around you and to make it better make it better that's that's what's so beautiful about this whole process is god didn't just create and then just let it just exist he gave us an opportunity to make it better i mean just think about that to build on what he has already built and to create what he has already created and he invites us to do that and to do it well and to do that in a way that serves and to loves and cares for those around us it's so beautiful and so when i look at work Right. Let's 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 take this to the, like realistically what this means. Okay. When I look at work and I look at what I do, I think two things now. I think what I'm doing, and I truly believe this. I don't think this is true for everybody, 
And I think this requires a heart check, a soul check, an evaluation. I really do. And I think, you know, adolescence and kind of figuring that out in college or not college or whatever, I think that's figuring out that gift. But I truly believe I'm operating in my gift in two ways. I believe this podcast allows me to operate in my gift. On my day job, quote unquote, I'm a mark- I do marketing. I do, I do design. I do marketing. And I, and I really, truly believe I've been gifted creatively in that area. And so when I look at both of those, when I look at the opportunity to do something like this or to preach or to speak or whatever, and when I look at marketing, I think I want to be the absolute freaking best at the gifts God gave me. The absolute best. I want to be the best. And then I want to be able to do it for myself and I want to do it for others. How am I taking what I do and leveraging it for those around me. And that opens up the conversation on um, gratitude and gratuity and being servant-minded and being humble and how we give. And there's so much more there to unpack with work. I mean, I could literally go on for like two, three, four, five hours, have like tons of guests on and continue this conversation. But at least we're setting the foundation for those kind of things, right? We can come back and talk about all this. But when I begin to recognize the intention of work and what God originally set out, it begins to fuel my soul in new ways because no longer do I look at just just work, like just work and say, man, I'm, I'm really just doing this so that I can just enjoy my life. Now I look at work and I'm thinking there's purpose in what I'm doing. There's purpose behind the gift God has given me to work in the area that I'm working in. I need to do that well. I need to steward that resource so that I can, yes, enjoy not just what I do, but also allow others joy by caring and loving them as well. It's, it's, it goes beyond me. I know in this like millennialistic culture that I get to live in, it's, it's like, it seems like everything's focused around my, my own identity and finding that. But ultimately, the way to find that is by serving and loving other people. And God sets that up in work. He sets that up in the initial conversation and the invitation there. I think that's so cool. I, oh my goodness, I, I, I want to keep going, but I know I know I try to keep these episodes to a certain, <laughs> a certain uh, a time limit. So I'm going to, I want to wrap it up. I'm going to wrap it up. There's so much more conversation to have here. We're going to put a pin in this. We're going to come back to this. I promise you, uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I love this conversation about work and I'm learning so much about work and what it means to, um, even, even in the toiling, oh gosh, even in the toiling, right? Through the painful toil that, that happens through the curse of work. Uh, there is still so much refinement my soul gets to go through through that. That's beautiful and joyful. And it still aligns with what God wants me to do. Even in the painful toil, I can take that and I can become great at what I'm doing and I can still use that as an opportunity to serve. Right? It doesn't mean that all work is pleasurable, all work is amazing, all work is a whatever. But the, the philosophy in my heart and in my soul has shifted to where what I do, it's not my identity, it's a gift from God, I'm going to be the best I can with it, and I'm going to leverage that as much as I can for myself and for those around me. And so that's, I guess that's, yeah, that's kind of my challenge for us, is to reevaluate how we see work, to begin to see it not as an identity, which is really hard for me, and I'm assuming a lot of, it's difficult for all of us, but to truly recenter ourselves and our identity in Christ and seeing it, seeing work as a gift, truly as a gift, an opportunity. 
an invitation to do something great, to create something better that was already there and to build on the greatness that God had already done by, again, doing it with excellence and, and serving and loving others really, really well. How can we do that? How are you doing that? How can you do that tomorrow? Right? What's that next step for you to be able to partake in that? And I just I want to leave us with that. And then I want to say we're coming back to this 100% because there's so much more. Wow.